In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. When the disciples heard this, they fell prostrate and were very much afraid. Why were they afraid? Why a response of fear at the Father's voice? They didn't seem frightened earlier. After all, Peter wanted to prolong the experience atop the mountain. Lord, it is good that we are here. These are Jesus' closest friends. They've already confessed that he is the Son of God. They've already confessed faith in him. So why this fear? Why this response? What accounts for their terror at hearing this confession of Jesus' divinity? This is my beloved Son. In a certain sense, we shouldn't be surprised at all at the Apostles' reaction. Wouldn't you react the same way if you heard a voice from heaven? This, after all, has been the consistent reaction of mankind since the fall to the voice, to the vision of God. We are afraid to be in God's presence. We are afraid to have a clear sight of God. Think back to Genesis 3, right after Adam and Eve have eaten the forbidden fruit. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees. But the Lord God called to the man and asked, where are you? He replied, I heard the sound of you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Think about that for a moment. Hiding from the all-knowing God, covering your nakedness before your Creator. It's absurd in one sense, and yet it's the universal human reaction that we've come to be very familiar with. We can't bear the sight of God. It's too much for us. It's the tragedy and the absurdity of human relationship with God after sin. We fear and we mistrust the God who made us, the God who sustains us at every moment in our being. We don't believe that God really can be who he says he is, that he really will be faithful to his promise because humanity can't bear to believe it. We've been unfaithful as a human race to the very purpose for which God made us. God made us to, know, to love him as he loves himself with his own love. God made us to love him as he loves himself with his own love. God wants us to share his divine life. He doesn't need it or lack anything. It's a pure gift. It's a pure act of generosity on his part. He made us in his image with intellect and will so we could freely and creatively love him with that love that he gives us. But this loving, trusting friendship was broken. 
It was broken by a disordered self-love on the part of man, by self-assertion and deceit, by mistrust and doubt. And when a loving relationship has been breached, nothing is so unbearable to the unfaithful party as the other's trust. With guilt, it can quickly become oppressive and overpowering, something to hide from indeed. And so the apostles, these friends of the Lord, were sore afraid. As Peter said elsewhere, leave me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. How often this summarizes our collective experience, a sense that we can't bear for God to look too closely at us. We can't bear for him to be too near to us, to see us too closely for who we are. The long course, though, of salvation history is a sort of divine pedagogy, a divine way of God teaching us who he really is, teaching us to trust him once again, showing us once more, no, this is who I am. I am your creator. You can trust me. In fact, you must trust me in order to be who you really are. Humanity has been like a wild animal in so many ways, mistrustful, uncertain around its creator, wounded and desperate at times. God's revelation to Israel is like a slow, luring back, a process of making humanity trust God slowly, gradually, over time, such that we can bear to be in his presence once more. And it culminates, it culminates wonderfully in the incarnation when God comes the closest to us that he ever could, when he becomes one of us, when he became man. Think back to the first reading, God's promise to Abraham and the establishment of this covenant with Israel, this covenant to overcome our fear, our mistrust, to gradually begin restoring this friendship with him, this friendship that was finally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Thus we see him conversing with Moses on the mountaintop, revealing the law, revealing who he is, but it's too much for the people. They cannot touch the mountaintop. They cannot come close. It's frightening. Thunder and lightning surround Mount Sinai in the desert. They can only see God in the cloud. Isaiah the prophet says, I am but a sinful man. I shall surely die, for I have seen the Lord. Slowly, gradually, over salvation history, God is drawing closer and closer to his people. And then we have today's gospel, the transfiguration. And God is so close indeed. Here he is. He reveals himself slowly so his people can bear it. And it's true in each of our lives as well. What's true for the people of Israel is true for each one of us. And it's true for the church. 
God is faithful to his promises, but he fulfills them for each of us often in unexpected ways. He loves to defy and confound our expectations of what he's going to do because those expectations have so often been corrupted by our mistrust of who he is. That's why Jesus comes as another sign of Jonah, a paradox. God uses the weak to defeat the strong. He takes human sin and mistrust and uses it to his plan. He takes the worst moments in our lives and he uses them to bring us where we're meant to be. He uses death to defeat death itself. The transfiguration, God's message, was meant to prepare his apostles, was meant to prepare us to recognize the cross for the victory it is. The splendor of Mount Tabor was meant to prepare us to understand the splendor of Mount Calvary. For we have heard the voice say, this is my beloved son. And we have seen the beloved son make a perfect act of love and obedience, even to the end. Sin makes God distant. The world disordered. Suffering unbearable. Jesus makes God our friend, the world restored, recreated, and suffering have meaning in love. The vision of God in heaven that we all hope for would be utterly unbearable, utterly unbearable, just as Tabor was for the apostles, if we were not prepared over the course of our lives to see him in heaven by being prepared on earth, if we did not have the corrective lenses of faith to heal our spiritual blindness. It's only by becoming friends of Christ that we can come to know and love God again. This friendship isn't abstract or notional. He calls us to come away by ourselves with him to pray each day. If today you hear his voice, harden not your heart. He wants to conform us to his image, to make us more and more a part of him. He's waiting for us in the confessional, in sacred scripture, in living out our vocation, in those we love most. Most of all, he wants to heal our vision to see how God's providence governs all things and how everything leads us back to him. That's why when he feeds us with his body and blood in the Eucharist, he wants us to see and trust only him, the one thing necessary. Because if we have him, we have everything. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and do not be afraid. And when the disciples raised their eyes, they saw no one else but Jesus alone. <laughs>